0: chapter ten of the return of alfred by herbert george jenkins this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon chapter ten smith acquires reach-me-downs one in little bilstead life passed decorously from sunrise to sundown and from sundown to sunrise few events disturbed the studied calm of its atmosphere a new hat "'or an indiscretion on the part of a domestic "'were equally topics of absorbing interest. "'Nothing ever happened, "'that is, nothing had happened for the last seven years. "'Sometimes Miss Small, "'who eked out an insignificant pension by doing dressmaking, "'would sigh for the days when the village had seethed with scandal. "'It lent an added spice to existence. "'The morning knew not what the evening would bring forth.' During the next forty-eight hours, Smith learned something of the dramatic excitements with which life in Little Bilstead had been fraught some six years previously. The village then had seethed with scandal, and the people went about on the tiptoe of excitement. John Postle, the village constable, would rub the right-hand side of his chin with his thumb and say, "'Well, bo, what do you think on it?' And there would be a shaking of heads, and probably an "'I'll be danged" or two from his hearers. In the sanded bar of the pigeons there had been great discussions, and the wildness of the rumours that were retailed would have appalled any but the most omnivorous scandal-monger. At the conclusion of some particularly piquant narration there would be a shuffling of feet, a general murmuring of voices, and a draining of earthenware mugs. It appeared that Alfred Warren had been not only of a convivial turn of mind, but intensely gregarious. He had attracted to himself some strange companions, including most of the undesirables, male and female, for miles around. No one had ever quite known when some influx of disreputables would turn little bilster topsy-turvy, cause the villagers to lock their doors at night, and sometimes even pile furniture against them. At first the pigeons had been used as a sort of headquarters by the revellers but a little straight talking from the chairman at the licensing sessions had caused Host Nutt some anxiety as to the renewal of his license, and his caution had grievously constricted the flow of liquor. After that, Tom Simmons had become the source from which supplies were obtained, and many a case had been delivered at his cottage by the local carrier, accompanied by a knowing wink. This accounted for his reference to the whisky. In those days, Simmons was rarely, if ever, quite sober but he was too cunning to neglect his work upon the roads. That would have meant disaster. Besides, he had a head like a hunting squire. The telling of the escapades of Alfred Warren seemed to have lost nothing with the passage of years. Many of the stories about him were clearly apocryphal, but even allowing a wide margin for imagination, there was enough left over to establish the fact that, whatever life in Little Bilstead had been during the residence of Alfred Warren, it had not lacked incident there were stories of strange midnight orgies suggestive of chapters from the lives of film stars in Los Angeles, and there were pranks and rags such as the screwing up of the village constable's doors and windows followed by an avalanche of lighted crackers down his chimney, or the serenading of the Miss Gels with instruments composed of household utensils and motor hooters, which had lasted the greater part of one summer night to the accompaniment of much raucous song. Colonel Enderby's open antagonism Smith traced to an episode of a few months before Alfred Warren had disappeared from Little Bilstead. The gallant colonel lived alone, a woman from the village doing for him during the day. One morning he had discovered a clothesline stretched across his front garden, in full view of the main road, from which dainty and intimate feminine garments sported in the breeze. As Colonel Enderby was a late riser, the whole of Little Bilstead made the discovery before he had even awakened. Furthermore, he had been forced to remove the offending garments himself, which he did by cutting down the line, Mrs. Warnes not being at her post at the customary hour. As a matter of fact, she had been, seen, and retired, horrified at the spectacle presented by the Colonel's front garden. Mrs. Warnes was a woman who hung her marriage lines in a black Oxford frame over the Parlour mantelpiece. On another occasion... Alfred Warren, and half a dozen of his companions, had doped Tom Bassingthwaite, the postman, as he was starting out upon his morning round. Then they had proceeded to steam open the letters and insert picture postcards of a character never permitted to circulate in this country. It had taken little bilstead months to recover from this outrage, and only lack of definite proof had saved the perpetrators from prosecution. Beneath all these stories there was an undercurrent of suggestive rumour, which never found expression in actual words. It was this which convinced Smith that Alfred Warren was what the village of Little Bilstead said he was, a rare wrongen. But all that was long ago, and for the past seven years Little Bilstead had made its own drama, just as, for the most part, it made its own clothes. Realisation of its loss had come slowly to Little Bilstead, the sight of Bob Thurkettle glooming along the highways, a gun under his arm and a scowl on his lowering brow, had contained the suggestion that at any time drama might return, arm in arm with tragedy. That was a time when Little Bilstead scarcely dared to breathe. Then there had come the time when Bob Thurkettle had left his gun at home, and the village had sighed its resignation and possibly its regrets, for even an English village has its proper pride and appreciates to the full the distinction of being referred to in London papers as the centre of a great crime. Now the black sheep was back again, and the old times would return. There would be no lack of excitement, Little Bilstead decided, as soon as things got going. It wanted only Bob Thurkettle, and then... In the meantime the black sheep was idling away the summer hours. It was all very comfortable, and he was quite content. But for the fact of Marjorie's frank avoidance of him... However, there was no ointment without its accompanying fly. Perhaps that was where flies went in the—how absurd! He realized that the vicar was striving to carry out his sister's orders, and discharge fittingly his duties as host. He would propose some undertaking, such as a visit to the church, or the exploration of the vegetable garden, and, as a preparation, go in search of his pipe. That was the last smith would see of him until he was routed out from his study for the next meal still life at the vicarage was very pleasant and janet generally had some piquant item of gossip to retail when he grew drowsy with the drone of the bees or the cooing of the doves in all probability it was only a lull before the storm he told himself two whilst little bilstead was busy speculating as to the nature of the entertainment that the cricket match was likely to produce Smith was busy considering the important question of suitable clothing in which to appear as one of the protagonists. An appeal to Willis, followed by a thorough and a systematic examination of Alfred Warren's wardrobe, failed to produce anything in the way of cricketing gear. Smith did not quite fancy playing in a tweed suit. His kit bag had been in the guard's van, and he had forgotten it. Apparently the guard had done the same. Somewhere on the great eastern railway system were his flannels and buckskin boots, "'But just where,' he was not in a position to say. "'In any case, there was no time to make inquiries.' "'You never liked cricket, Mr. Alfred,' Willis explained, to account for the absence of appropriate clothing. Willis seemed capable of defending every shortcoming of the son and heir as it presented itself. "'It didn't agree with you, sir,' he added. "'Probably Lady Warren had not thought it necessary to renew that particular portion of her son's wardrobe.' well anyhow i'm going to play said smith so what's to be done miss marjorie's taking the car into norwich this afternoon began willis tentatively perhaps you could willis said smith gravely there are moments when you reach napoleonic heights of inspiration if miss marjorie will run me into norwich i can get fixed up with reach-me-downs that will probably be overlong and too narrow or too broad and not long enough that afternoon marjorie drove smith into norwich with eric in a tonneau armed with a good supply of chocolate a pea-shooter a catapult and ammunition sufficient for an extended offensive the pea-shooter was for use upon the inhabitants of the villages they passed through whereas the catapult he kept for the fauna during the early part of the outward journey he became confused in the matter of weapons and that was in the case of a ditcher, bent and busy, who presented a target upon which a pea-shooter would have been wasted. The man's yell as he straightened himself caused both Marjorie and Smith to look around, but all they saw was an innocent, freckled face behind a bar of chocolate, whilst in the distance a man was shaking his clenched hand at the disappearing car, the other hand being engaged elsewhere. Smith had offered to drive, but Marjorie declined, and he settled down contentedly to watch the dexterous way in which she handled the car. She was careful, but she lost no opportunity of picking up speed on safe bits of road. Smith ventured a few general remarks, but he was conscious once more of the barrier the girl seemed determined should exist between them. She had a reasonable excuse for not being conversational, and, after a few unsuccessful efforts, Smith gave up the struggle." He soon however found a new source of interest in the activities of eric by moving his position slightly he was able to obtain a view of the tonneau eric's success with the ditcher had caused him permanently to lay aside the pea-shooter as a weapon of offence and devote himself to the catapult kneeling on the back seat he proceeded to let fly at anything that moved smith could not judge with what effect but in one or two instances the marksmanship must have been good Noticeably, when a terrified pig gave tongue, its squeal rising clear cut above the hum of the car. Smith was not surprised when later he heard Eric endeavouring to persuade Marjorie to return by another route, and he earned Eric's lifelong devotion by supporting the suggestion. Smith's object was a purely selfish one. He had no desire to be stopped every hundred yards or so by those who had suffered from Eric's dexterity with the catapult. At the maid's head hotel they parted, Marjorie to do her shopping, Eric to replenish his supply of ammunition, and Smith to search for boots and flannel trousers. Marjorie had left no doubt as to her intentions when she informed him that they would be starting back at five o'clock, so as to be home well in time for dinner. With a final word of warning to Eric, who had point blank refused to accompany her, she walked out of the hotel, leaving Smith and Eric to follow. For reasons best known to himself, Eric apparently desired to be alone, but he could not quite discover the right way to shake off Smith, as he would have expressed it. He solved the problem by suddenly darting down a Side Street, with an exclamation to the effect that, "'There's a fellow I know!' as Smith was permitted to pursue his way alone. Having secured flannels that seemed close enough a fit to stay on him, and at the same time not too close a fit to part where they should not part, Smith next proceeded to search for a pair of boots these secured and ordered to be sent to the maid's head, he decided to take a stroll through the city until it was time to keep the rendezvous at the hotel. "'If it isn't little Alfie Warren!' He turned swiftly on his heel from an examination of a fine old mezzotint of Sir Robert Peel to find himself gazing into a pair of bold dark eyes above which was perched a large straw hat laden with artificial flowers and fruit, more suggestive of a Harvard festival than a head-covering. "'I thought it was you,' said the owner of the eyes. "'Fancy meeting you after all these years!' That one swift look had thoroughly unnerved Smith. The green jumper over a short tweed skirt of a loud pattern, the coarse features heavily smothered with powder, the red lips and, above all, the dead gold hair, dark at the roots, caused him involuntarily to shudder. "'I am afraid you have made a mistake,' he said coldly, as he formally lifted his head. "'My name is not Warren.' "'Oh, ring off!' she cried with a laugh. "'I should have known you anywhere. "'You look as if you had been on a water-wagon, though. "'I heard you were back.' "'I assure you,' said Smith quietly, "'that you have made the mistake. "'My name is not Alfred Warren, but James Smith.' "'Alias Bill Jones, or Henry Robinson.' She laughed shrilly, and several passers-by looked curiously at the pair. He made a movement to pass on, but the woman suddenly thrust her arm through his. "'Come and let us have a barley-water, Alfie. I'm as dry as a Yankee!' For a moment he hesitated, gazing about him as if meditating flight. "'I—' he began. Then he stopped suddenly. There, standing a few yards away, was Marjorie. Apparently she had just come out of a shop. For the space of a second— Her eyes met his, then she turned and walked off in the opposite direction with a studied indifference that maddened him. "'I assure you that you are mistaken,' he said, in a voice loud enough, he hoped, for Marjorie to hear. Turning on his heel, he walked quickly in the opposite direction from that she had taken. "'Oity-toity!' cried the woman. "'Getting too proud to know our old pals, are we? "'You've got a fat lot to be proud of, Alfie Warren.' Smith's instinct was to take to his heels and run. He was conscious of the heads turned in his direction, whilst in his heart was a great terror lest the woman should pursue him. Never had Alfred Warren been so thoroughly and comprehensively cursed in the whole of his existence as he was during the next few minutes. For half an hour Smith wandered about the city, and at a pace that drew to him many curious glances was brought back to realities again by Eric hailing him from the other side of the road. "'Got your bags?' he inquired, one halfway across. "'Bags?' repeated Smith vaguely. Uh, "'Yes, of course,' he added, a moment later, realising the purport of the question. "'Quite all right, thanks.' For a moment all thought of Cricket had vanished from his mind. He could remember only the look Marjorie had directed towards him. "'Damn!' he muttered eh eric looked at him inquiringly i remarked damn said smith quietly why queried the boy i was wondering what i am going to say when we pass that ditcher on the way home and also the owner of the pig eric's face flamed and a moment later he disappeared without even the intimation that he had seen a fellow he knew With an hour still to spare, Smith was struck with the idea of calling upon Lady Warren's solicitor. Recognition by Alfred Warren's erstwhile friends seemed likely to prove not the least embarrassing feature of the adventure, and this had inspired him to inquire of Willis the name and address of the family lawyer. The process of psychologizing the real Alfred was proving both swift and startling, and it might be advisable to make the acquaintance of Lady Warren's solicitor as a measure of precaution. At least he could be depended upon to approach the problem without emotion. End of chapter ten.